Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast with me, Conor Whiteley. Psychology student and international best-selling psychology author of over 30 psychology books, bringing you the latest psychology news, fascinating psychology topics and more each week. If you want to learn more, then please check out connorwhiteley.net forward slash books. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the YouTube video or follow on your favourite podcast app. And here's the show. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 210 of the Psychology World Podcast with me Colin Whiteley. And today's episode is on why serial killers don't offer police unique insights. And it is Saturday the 10th of June 2023 as I record this. So I really wanted to do today's podcast episode because this is such a fun topic which it's definitely filled up with a lot of myths and misconceptions because lots of people think that serial killers are absolutely perfect people to give us insights about criminal behaviour and people believe that to be able to catch a killer you need a killer in a turn which makes absolutely no sense and this podcast episode really does approve it and if we actually look at a lot of the research behind serial killers and most importantly when serial killers try to be helpful why they're actually not and they're actually basically useless about catching other criminals but they are quite useful in revealing more information about themselves so we explore this in a lot more depth and it is really really interesting I definitely do enjoy looking at serial killers it's a lot of fun it's dark fun but again though, as I spoke about in a podcast episode back in January, they're so fascinating that people do love them. And I'm no exception. So moving on to the psychology news section, moving from the British Psychological Society Research Digest. And the first one is rather interesting, I think. Daredevils at dusk. Have you ever found yourself feeling a little bolder later in the day? We often say we'll sleep on a big decision and make it in the morning, as it turns out that strategy actually may lead us to make safer choices. Our willingness to take risks is thought to be influenced by dopamine and serotonin neuromodulators, those levels vary throughout the day. This begs the question, are we more likely to take a risk later in the day? Emma Young takes a look at a new research from University College London's The Great Brain Egg Experiment. And then if you were click on the research article, well then it does show that people do make more risky decisions later in the day. The effect size was small, but um, an effect size is an effect size is something I sent over. So, but the researchers do argue that this could have some very real world consequences that could negatively impact people. And this I definitely think is quite important and this is something that I try to think about in my own thinking and processes. For example, I'll talk about this more in the personal update, but this week I brought a kayak. So, and I really didn't want to rush into it because I was sitting in the hot tub on like um, last Saturday thinking about it and I realised that yes I wanted but again though I might just still be on the 
hi that I say in air quotes from joining it on her like on Friday so I wanted to sleep on it for a few days and then make a decision and because I was still excited about it a few days later I decided that yes this isn't a quick thing this isn't a fad I actually do want to do this so really interesting so now that we actually know these I think that the next steps would be one well one of replicating the results so we know that this isn't some fluke but also though try and find out is there any way we can combat it is there a specific i don't know like mindfulness technique is there a specific way that we can actually counteract this bias or is simply becoming aware of it some care that can be useful to like, counteract it because if we're aware we're more likely to make these risky decisions if we do make a decision later in the day that is risky we need to ask ourselves is this the sort of risk that i want to make or is this simply a result of this more risky effect that this research found interesting and definitely food for thought and the next one is Tears of joy flow differently across cultures and demographics. It's hard not to get a little choked up watching athletes win a gold in the Olympics. Seeing champions shed tears isn't, a, isn't an uncommon occurrence. However, there's been previous little research into what makes someone more or less likely to shed joyful tears partially because they're very tri tricky to trigger in a lab in the environment. Unless you've just persuaded a tricky software package to cooperate, completely agree with that bit, completely. New research published in Emotion takes a look at Olympic gold medalists' ages, sexes, home coaches and more to discover what factors makes them more or less likely to get teary-eyed on the podium. We break down the findings a few bites here. So I'm not going to click on that article because part of me is thinking, why do we need to know this? Like, I'm all for researching whatever because we need to understand everything. Was the point of psychology is to understand everything in human behaviour. But whether someone is more or less likely to become teary on the podium, I don't see how it's going to benefit humanity. So, and I don't really think there's a convincing argument for it. So it's good that we've got it. I'm not sure there's any practical implications. Like, we're not going to protect someone. We aren't going to save someone's life by this research. We aren't going to be able to give someone a better education because of this. So, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure, sure that this is a great one. But it's interesting and I do have to admit because I do like cross-cultural research it is interesting to see the different impacts that uh, that culture has on the research. So moving on to the last one. Open quote. Humans made these problems but we can fix them. Close quote. Uniting communities for a sustainable world is no small task. In uh, the face of egg, uh, egg extinction and the challenges and tragedies in the coming years, psychologists around the world are looking at what they can bring to the table to ensure a brighter future. Ahead of July's European Congress of Psychology, Dr Charlotte V of the University of Sussex writes for the psychologist 
about actions academic psychologists are taking against climate crisis. Whilst well, I'm actually not going to open my issue of the psychologist because I'm like a year behind and I'm not actually going to like read it. This is something I do want to think about because because all of us as psychology students and psychology professionals, we do have the power to make changes. To be honest, every single person does, whether you go to university or you don't. Everyone has the power to make a small difference in their lives, whether this is just using a bit less power, choosing a more a more environmentally friendly way to like travel about. Everyone has the power to make a small action. And yes, some people argue, oh, small actions don't mean anything. But that's not the point. If one person makes, say, a small change, then over time, that adds up. But if everyone makes a small change together, that's going to have a massive impact. That's, that's the first thing. Also, what are psychologists? We are experts in a human behaviour. Social psychologists, they study persuasion. Of course, I wonder this, and yes, I know I'm going to be really overly simplistic here, but bear with me. The cognitive lot, right, they study mental processes and the different triggers in the brain that trigger certain like behaviours. And yes, very oversimplified here. The biological psychology lot, they study biology, and I'm not sure how that's like useful here, but anyway, though, so basically, all of us study different areas about human behaviour, and we can apply that knowledge to the climate crisis. Because the main thing about the climate crisis is that because it's so scary, and because it can easily lead to our egg extinction, it triggers denial behaviour. It is that denial behaviour that will have massive damage so because to be honest we do have the technology we do have the technology we have the money we have the well we don't have the political will we have everything we need to stop the, the climate crisis right now i truly truly believe that but because people enter denial behavior and they don't think that it's serious we don't do it so we don't invest in like green energy etc etc Denial behaviour is the biggest problem. But equally, so psychologists found denial behaviour and we named it, but we also have the power to combat it. So if we all focus on how do we stop denial behaviour and how do we make people not necessarily feel hopeful about, about the change, but we make them realise that they, that they do have the power to fight the climate crisis, and that is how we will win and that's how we will solve these problems problems that to be honest will cost us our lives and they will cost our egg extinction though so it's interesting we do need to focus on it but every single person has the power to do something even if it's something smaller but psychology does have the research and the power or at least the ability to do more research that will help us over the denial behaviour that is making people not believe in the climate crisis or they might believe it but they might feel powerless to stop it okay so really interesting and that's the sort of note that i wanted to end this psychology news section on. so now the psychology news section is done let's move on to the personal update So we're moving on to the personal update. This week has been really busy 
really good. The weather is great. Like, of course, starters spending lots of time like with the family. Yeah, like yesterday though. But on more like um useful stuff and more psychology related stuff. Lots of stuff uh, has been like going on, including one of the new psychology books that I'm working on for next year. So now I've done my third and final year at university, I'm aware of the tons of myths that go on about your, your final year at university. So I've decided to do a book that I'm tentatively calling Third Year Survival Guide for Psychology Students. It's, a, it's been so much fun to write like so far because I get to talk about stuff that I've just not mentioned on the podcast. I get to talk about how brilliant and how hopeful it is because your third year is brilliant. I, I've loved my third year. I've made great friends. I've made great opportunities and it's been the best year of university so far. But then I also know that there's a lot of fear about your, fine, your third and final year of your undergraduate. I know lots of people are quite scared about it because it's so important because you've got your final year project, which again, people get really scared over. But I don't think you need to be because I think if you're positive about it, if you're hopeful, if you try to enjoy it, then it's a lot better. I've heard tons of nightmare stories from other students during this third and final year that to be honest, I feel sorry for them. So to be honest, what I've done with this book so far is that I've written about my eclipse experience, written about what other people have experienced, and just try to give people tips about well what to do and what and what absolutely avoid. Like for starters, rely statistics before your final year, please. If there's any first or second year psychology students listening to this, rely statistics. You're going to need them more than I can ever, ever say. <laughs> so what you've got that to look forward to coming out in 2024. So as I mentioned in the psychology news section, I bought myself a kayak. And the reason why I actually wanted to mention this is a twofold. No, to be honest, probably like threefold. So first of all, I bought myself an inflatable one because if any kayaker is actually like listening to the podcast, you know, a proper kayak is expensive. And to be honest, they're massive. Like, like my car's quite big considering how small it is. It's not big enough for a proper kayak. And again, though, you've sort of got to find someone to store it, etc., etc. So the great thing about an inflatable kayak is that you can sort of compress it in into like a nice, easy bag. One of the reasons I brought it, and to be honest, this is the this is the why I'm actually talking about this. So to be honest, I think that sometimes, uh, as much as I love my life, I really do. I've got a great family, got a great life, uh, and everything else. Uh, I think sometimes you do sort of need a change, uh, and I really did enjoy Friday when I actually went um, kayaking with my university lot, and I had actually missed kayaking quite a bit because. I used to do it because I was in the Sea Scouts and we used to do it on like Friday nights during the summer. So I had really, really missed it. Well, missed it out. And I managed to work out that that it's worth the money if I do it twice a month until the end of September. And then whenever I use it next year, it's simply profit. And I'm simply like getting it for free. 
And Kent actually has some brilliant um, kayaking places. So I'm actually going kayaking on the day this like goes out. And if you want to see photos, I'm going to post them on um, Connor Whiteley Fiction Author. And to be honest, I will actually show it on my um, psychology Facebook page. So if you're interested, you can actually like um, look at that Monday night. I'll be posting them. But another reason why I actually decided to buy it was simply because of being out in nature, being out on the water. The sort is it's super duper relaxing. Like um, when I was kayaking, because I sort of like zoomed off, it was I hadn't done in so long. I just wanted to not so much be powerful, but I just wanted to speed through it to like an Olympic champion that I got called. <laughs> it was just so nice and relaxing being out in nature being by the river, seeing the reeds, just listening to the wind. I really did not pay that much attention to it to some extent, but it really did improve my mental health. And it was really, really helpful though. So like sometimes it's just nice to go out into the river. To be honest, it's a small stream. It's not a massive raging river at all. <laughs> but it's really nice just to go out, relax, be in nature. So that really doesn't improve like your mental health so so the reason why i'm actually telling you this is basically just that sometimes you do need to change up life a little bit like start a new hobby make a change just don't just never ever get stuck in the same slug of life even though i wasn't doing that but still though it's still good to make a change from time to time also focus on your mental health though because mental health really important and if a kayaking or another sport helps your mental health then do it have fun enjoy life so i just thought that i would share that with you as a little life update and as always i always love to hear your thoughts and feelings on today's episode so you can always email me conwhitely.net you can always leave a comment at the show notes at ConorWhiteley.net forward slash podcast and you can always tweet me on Twitter at SciFiWhiteley or leave a comment on the Facebook post at ConorWhiteley Psychology Author. I really do love to hear from all of you because it really helps make the podcast feel more like a conversation. And today's episode has been sponsored by Criminal Profiling, a forensics and a criminal psychology guide to FBI and statistical profiling. So this is an extremely popular book. This is my best-selling book that I'm quite honestly shocked about because I expected this to do well. I did not expect it to do this well. This is super popular. It's got tons of great reviews and people absolutely love this book. So thank you, amazing readers. And part of this is because, is because I do not sugarcoat profiling. Profiling is... Profiling is absolutely rubbish because this is not psychology, it's not based on fact, it's not based on science. So the fact that profiling has become so popular is a shame because it's basically all lies. It's basically best guesses, guesses though. So what the point of this book is, is actually to explain what profiling actually is because it's not what everyone thinks why profiling is really bad, why it's not based on the science, but also it also gives the more hopeful version about statistical profiling because statistical profiling could be a good version. 
it could be a good replacement. It's not perfect, but it is actually based on a science, or at least some fairly good science. It's really interesting. I loved it. It's a really popular and it's really well reviewed. So if you want a great, really easy to understand book, definitely check out Criminal Profiling. Available from all major ebook retailers, and you can get the paperback and hardback version from Amazon, your local bookstore, or local library if you request it. And you can buy the ebook directly from me at playhips.com forward slash Connor Wiley. So, what was buying books helps us to support the editing and the production of the podcast. My time in the creation of the podcast is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And as always, thank you to my wonderful patrons because your support helps me to know that you like the show and you want it to continue. So if you wanted tons of other great rewards like early access to the blog post, a person, a closer relationship between me as the podcast creator and you as the listener and a lot of like behind the scenes footage, then you can now become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the psychology world podcast so now the personal update's done let's move on to the content part of today's episode so we're moving on to the content part of today's episode so we're going to be talking about why serial killers don't offer police unique insights I think this is just such a brilliant and really fascinating podcast episode of that episode that I'm really looking forward to. So let's dive into it. Why serial killers don't offer police unique insights. As a mystery writer myself, I really do understand why filmmakers and writers add in scenes about uh, the detectives going to see serial killers. It is gripping extremely entertaining and it is a lot of fun for readers or watchers. However, in reality, whenever serial killers do actually talk about the crimes of other killers, they are just spinning wild ideas based on their own killings and experiences. Therefore, instead of this conversation of being useful to the police by enhancing their learning about the killer they're hunting, they actually only learn more about the killer that they've already caught, so not really that useful. For example, back in 1984, the Green River Killer investigation was launched, and after reading a few reports, the serial killer Ted Bunty lured detectives down to his prison cell in Florida, so he could talk to them about the killings. Yet, instead of telling them anything important, he merely spun ideas about the killings of his own predatory motives. Therefore, Detective Kelper used this opportunity to get Bunty to talk about his own egg experience, so the detective could learn more about Bunty. However, Stephen in applied this simple conversation or visit actually led to the killer getting caught. It is pure fiction, since the killer... Gary Ridgeway was only caught in 2001 because of DNA evidence. Another good example can be found with the Toolbox Killer, Roy Norris, when he completely failed to give the NYPD an effective way to catch the freeway killer who turned out to be Bill Bonham. 
again, similar to Bunty, been reading about the freeway killer through some news reports, and he just told the police some random things. Some of it turns out to be true, but to say it is a unique insight is again fiction. For example, Norris mentioned how the freeway killer probably had a partner and it travelled in a van with a sliding door. Both of these details were correct. Yet, as Detective Son says, pointed out, these were impressive but added little because it was actually one of Bonin's own accomplices that led the police to the killer. A final example can be found when the serial killer's Keith Jesperson and Joel Radcliffe were invited to give opinions on different unsolved murders by the people behind the TV show Dark Minds. Whilst there is some comment about the serial killers being important to the show and giving insights no one else thought of, there were more comments in places like the New York Daily News that say the following. Open quote. The main disappointment though is that Joe Radcliffe doesn't seem to have uh, insights that differ dramatically from those of other psychological profilers on other similar TV programs. Close quote. Overall, showing that if serial killers are brought in to offer inner insight, there is very little evidence that they are actually helpful and not just talking about their own twisted egg experiences. This experience tends to be very different from the real killer too. Where did the idea of killers having unique insights come from? So this idea that is based in complete fiction that can actually be traced back to the 19th century because the French pathologist Alexandria Lancaster wanted and encouraged offenders in a prison to write criminal autobiographies. He wanted this because he hoped that these books would reveal how they had become criminals and were they born like this or had they developed it over time. Then each week Alexandria would check on the criminals notebooks and he would correct them and guide them towards personal awareness or whilst in the process of learning about the killer's personal histories including how the ch how the childhood of violent offenders were filled with tension, criminality, abuse and disease. And we have to give him a credit whether this is due because this project, I say in air quotes, because it wasn't a study, <laughs> did turn out to be useful because it helped us to start understanding that criminal behaviour was a lot more complex than previously believed why research offers unique insights into serial killers. Furthermore, I want to point out that the entire point of this podcast isn't to argue that we have nothing to learn from serial killers. The point is that research can learn from serial killers and it is serial killers have no unique insights that research cannot get using the scientific method. For example, Dr. Carlyle did a lot of good studies and assessments on a lot of serial killers, including Arthur Bishop, Ted Bunty, and many others. 
This research resulted in the doctor proposing a theory about the ability of serial killers compartmentalize, and this was to help explain the psychological dynamics of these offenders, who, for all intents and purposes, are socially functioning. Yet, what I think is one of the most important findings is absolutely none of the interviews between Kyle and the serial killers revealed that the serial killers were able or capable of uh, being in a positive, helpful, investigative partnership between them and the police. In other words, serial killers are not capable of being helpful to the police. Conclusion so as we wrap up this uh, criminal podcast episode, so I wanted to admit that looking at serial killers is always fun. I'll never deny that because they are scary, they are fascinating, and they're dangerous. Dangerous, though, which is why in the podcast episode that I did back in January, we did talk about serial killers because they are interesting. However, in terms of uh, civil killers actually offering anyone anything useful, this simply isn't based in fact, and this is a fictional device used by writers like myself to make a piece of entertainment gripping, engaging, and captivating. Especially as the more we learn about civil killers because of good research, the less we find that civil killers are able to offer anything too special or insightful. Partly this is because the term serial killer isn't a personality type, it isn't a type of person and isn't a concrete definition of a person. It is simply a description of behaviour where some person has killed two people at least two separate times. Then as this is a description, it has tons of room for variability in the actions and the behaviours and methods and motives used by the civil killers. Overall, as fascinating as I think the idea of to catch a killer, you need a killer, it simply isn't true. And come on, even if a handful of the civil killers were to give you good information, what are the actual chances that they are the only people in the entire world, all 8 billion of us, to have the same insight? Zero. So I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode and you got something out of it. I always enjoy serial killers and forensic psychology because it is a dark topic, I won't lie, but it's one of the more fun dark topics though. It's always well worth looking at because it's a lot of fun and it is very entertaining. So if you know someone who enjoyed today's episode, then please share it with them. I'm always really grateful when you wonderful people help spread the word about the podcast. And if you want to learn more, definitely check out Criminal Profiling, available in all visual places. It's a brilliant book, very popular, I really do recommend it. And you can buy the ebook directly from me at payhip.com forward slash Con Wiley. And if you want to become a patron of the show, definitely check out patreon.com forward slash Con Wiley. So have a great day everyone, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. Please remember to like the video and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app.
And if you wanted to learn more, then please check out the backlist of the podcast episodes or my books at conwhiteley.net. So have a great day and I'll see you next time.